Jonathan Spence, my favorite Western historian of China, and the person whose books first hooked me on the country in the first place, passed away this past September. To discuss Spence, today I am deeply honored to have another of my top five modern historians, Paul Kennedy, who spent on the, on the show. He spent four decades as Spence's colleague and friend at Yale University. Paul, welcome to China Talk. Thank you. So, Thank you indeed. So, Paul, I wanted to open with a quote from uh, the Chan's Great Continent. Uh, it's at the end of the introduction where uh, Spence talks about, you know, what he thinks he's doing as a historian. So in it, he says, as a historian, I'm interested in the ways that levels of reality intersect and overlap. It is my implicit belief that bold generalizations are usually wide of the mark and that the individual experience rarely matches the allegedly universal trend. It is in that spirit that I offer these sightings of a great but distant culture. We must imagine our pilots and navigators, and perhaps also our cheats and those with broken hearts, holding rather simple instruments in their hands as they make those sightings. Furthermore, the hands that hold the instruments are often chapped with cold or weak with sweat. Our guides are standing on sloping decks that shift angle without warning and are often blinded by a burst of spray or dazzled by an unexpected dart from a previously beclouded sun. And at the target of their curiosity remains distant and often somber, the color of mourning, as Loti wrote. And then, two, they cannot even be sure that they have come to the right place. But that, after all, is a risk that all of us must take. My thoughts are uh, to go to a conversation I had with him about his time as a young second lieutenant in the Green Howards, that's a famous Yorkshire regiment, when he did his national service after he had uh, finished his education at the famous Winchester College. This is before he goes to Clare College, Cambridge, to start doing Tudor and Stuart history. He is obliged by the British system then in the early to mid-1950s to go into the army. Because he is from that intellectual background and is headed off to college, he is not a grunt in the British army, but is made a very junior officer. He was in Germany uh, for most of the time during the in intense parts of the Cold War. And I asked him what were the most uh, scary episodes in his time as a young British officer, thinking it would be something to do with you know, manning the, uh, the borders with Russian troops on the other side. His reply was very firm. He said there was nothing so frightening as having to go out every Saturday evening with six very large military policemen to downtown Bielefeld to separate out the Yorkshire troops from the Lancashire troops as they spilled out of the, the pubs and bars and kniper and to, to, get, to get things really sorted out and then to go around the next day as a, still a responsible junior officer to talk to the uh, outraged German inhabitants about the damage which had been done to their front gardens or to their, their shop windows or something like that by the drunken British troops. This was the reality on the ground. So I always thought that Jonathan was there in this critical part of the Cold War, holding the border, as it were, 
but what he saw were human beings and their uh, vicissitudes and their anxieties and their real life. And I think this meant that when he went on to, to study as an as a undergraduate student at Cambridge and then as a graduate student at uh, Yale, he never lost sight of the fact that there was a, a really interesting lower life human dimension to the great sweep of history. Have there been nothing in the many, many books on the Cold War between the East and the West, which will talk about what happened to the British troops on Saturday nights, but that was there in the real world. And I think it gave him an ambition to try to write so, at least some of his books of history, which would be history from below, history from real atmospheric, and I stress atmospheric circumstance. Let's let's um uh, let let's stay on that kind of at, uh, his his mastery of atmosphere and the kind of novelistic way in which he approached a lot of his a lot of his subject. You know, how is he able to pull this off? Why don't more people do it? Does everyone who has this gene in them just go off and write fiction? Um, and uh, what 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 about history? Um, you know, kept kept Spence in that mold as opposed to just, um, uh, you know, just, just going off and writing stories. What a really interesting question. And I'd love to stay with it for a little while, as you say, bear in mind that this is also somebody who can write the big books. He can write, uh, the, the rise of modern China. He can write a brief, a biography of Mao. Uh, he can do big history. There's no doubt about that. But he can also do, miraculously, I think, he can also do small atmospheric history and get it right. And uh, you use the word novel or novelistic, and in some ways it's quite right because when you look at those small-scale, small-person's anecdotal uh, atmospheric histories of his, like Matteo Ricci, or the question of who, they do read magnificently like a, like a Patrick O'Brien novel. Yeah. And yet, uh, every one of the paragraphs and sentences in this Patrick O'Brien-type history has a deep archival base. So I guess one of my favorites, and many, many people will have a, could have a lovely a late evening um, over a few beers or schnapps conversation and almost disagreement about what is your favorite Jonathan Spence book? Because you could get six really good replies or nine good replies out of it, and every every one of them would be would be really really easy to defend, easy to advance. So I'm going to go for. The question of who. Okay. And I'm going to start not just there, but with uh but with the book he did previously to this one, which was The Memory Palace of Matteo Ricci. So this wonderful story, as listeners and readers know, of the the Jesuit who goes to China. Uh Jonathan did an extraordinary amount of 
archival research and if necessary, uh, oral interview research to get his books right. Yeah, I can remember one time in the mid-1980s where he had come back from a long number of days at a Jesuit mission retirement home, I think, in <laughs> San Mateo. And while he was there, he was talking with these very elderly but enormously scholarly Jesuits who themselves had perhaps been to China and lived in China for many years in the 1930s and 1940s before they were kicked out or before their superior brought them home. And they knew all of the story of Matteo Ricci and could supply Jonathan with an enormous amount of atmospheric details about what it must have been like. So he was chatting over dinner about his admiration for their scholarship. And as I was listening to him, of course, I was reinforced in my admiration for his scholarship. And then it was only a year or so later after Matteo Ricci came out, I think we were back again at his house or at his little place on Block Island where he would sit under a tree in the summer sunshine with a big straw hat on, reading something and taking notes on something, that I would, having arrived at the house, go around and see him and sit beside him in the garden, looking over the hay fields of Block Island. And he said, I'm interested in this little Chinaman who nobody knows about, but he got onto a French warship and came all the way back to the Gironde and was stayed there as the assistant to a French bishop and everything fell apart and eventually he had to be sent back home and everybody was puzzled by what this guy was doing and what his mission was. And I think I'm going to call the book uh, The Question of Who. Now, when you get into this mere... Um, a 175-page book. Jonathan could do exquisite slimline books as well as big, hefty ones. You find he tells the story from the beginning of this, uh, of this French prelate of the church under instructions to return home and needing a Chinese-language uh, assistant secretary to take notes they uh, recruit who almost at the last moment, and then they set off for the long, dangerous, you know, six or eight week uh, tr trip in this in this French sailing boat, small warship, back to Western France. If you read it, it seems as if uh, almost everything is written as a novel, as if you're as if you're reading. Um, you know, as if, as if you're reading uh, from a Patrick O'Brien uh, Masters and Commanders novel, you get descriptions of arriving um, off the coast of Brazil uh, about three quarters of the journey over. Jonathan describes in a, in a paragraph or two the sun setting over the 
tall trees at the entrance to the estuary in Pernambico or Recife. And then later on, they arrive and drop anchor in one of the ports of Western France, uh, the, the Ile de Ray or something like that. And it looks as if you're reading something novelistic. Uh, Jane Austen or Patrick O'Brien, or it's about the trees, it's about the time of the year, it's about the ride from their harbor to the inland uh, town and then on to Paris. And you, you can follow it without needing to check what's happening in the footnotes of the book. But if you go to the notes, the notes on the ocean voyage, the notes on the ride from Nantes, the notes about the, here is on page 150, references to what he writes about on page 17 of the book. On the roads and countrysides, get this, he says, Polly the author's observation. In other words, Jonathan has gone to France and has taken that journey along the small you know, route, not even a route nationale, inwards, but also the 18th century Cassini map, sheet number six. He has found the map of the 18th century Gironde in the Archive Nationale and is able to describe the, the territory, the topography, which he weaves into a story of the bringing of this eccentric Chinese person who, along the road, to be interrogated by the bishop. When the bishop interrogates who, with the use of a Chinese interpreter and one of the Jesuits, you get the full record of this in the French police files because they have escorted them in order that brigands don't get at them. And Jonathan makes a note about the, uh, the incidents of brigandry in that part of France in the 1740s. And then you get the report of the interview of who, and where do you find that report? You find it in the Vatican archives, in the Jesuit superiors' files. So he has gone. He has gone to the countryside to see what's happening. He has gone to the local Provence, provincial, and then police records. He's worked in the Archive Nationale. By the way, staying in a small apartment that Professor John Merriman had in the Marais in, um, in Paris, where Jonathan could get a sense of you know, narrow streets and Parisian life still there in the 1980s. And then he gets the Vatican records to complement everything. How was it, I asked him once, how did he, he's picked up the Chinese when he comes to Yale and he falls totally for Arthur and Mary Wright and he becomes a China historian rather than a Tudor Stuart historian, which he had been under Geoffrey Elton at Clare College. How is it that he has the European languages? How is it that he has a pretty effortless French? Well, his mother is a French teacher. And his mother sends him as a young boy at Winchester College 
to different parts of Europe to stay with a family to learn the language there. So he's got this Italian. I think he has German and Spanish as well. He, uh, his Chinese is so incredibly good. So he picks up the story of who from Chinese sources originally. That's what pricks his uh, curiosity. Then he goes to France and he goes to the Vatican and he puts it all together. And it's simultaneously a lovely narrative, almost novel sort of book. And on the other hand, it's an incredibly scholarly book about parts of Chinese interactions on the ground with Westerners in the 1740s and 1750s and the incredible role of the church and the missionaries in China at that time. It's hard to imagine anybody else being able to do anything as good as that, but he gives this example that scholarship and history can be at so many levels. Telling the, uh, the, 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 the story of the research for that book, it reminds me of another of my top five modern historians, Robert Caro. Um, you know, when he's going out into West Texas and, 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 and sort of sleeping under the stars, trying to get in LBJ's head. But I think, you know, what, what, what ranks Spence above Caro in my book is the, is the sort of care and concern that, um, and, and the attention that goes not just to sort of power and the, and the nature of, you know, what drives countries, but also this, this deeply, deeply human concern for these people who you know, do not quote unquote matter um, in the grand scheme of history, unless you are a, a, a real humanist at heart um, and are able to find the sort of power and meaning out of these, um, you know, really small uh, characters on the, on the global stage. I never had the chance to ask him what particular courses that he took at Cambridge really influenced his methodology and approach to history, but he was at those UK universities and also probably taught at Winchester by history teachers who knew what was going on. He was there when the really significant historiographical revolution occurred in the history from below approach to the subject of studying and understanding the past. This had originally come from a French Annal school, which Jonathan would be familiar with. Uh, it had come from Braudel's attempt to look at the Mediterranean world in the age of Philip II. And it was a Mediterranean world, which was deeply about the world at the bottom of a historical pile. But he was also probably influenced by uh, E.P. Thompson and Hobson and Roudet and a whole bunch of more radical British historians of social history at the bottom. Uh, I think that probably E.P. Thompson's making of the English working class might have been somewhere there on Jonathan's reading list as he struggled to do that new sort of history while he was being taught by the formidable Professor Jeffrey Elton, the historian of the Tudor revolution in government and the great biographer of Thomas Cromwell. 
in his college at uh, Clare College. Elton was uh, Jonathan Spencer's tutor for three years at Clare, which must have been a pretty terrifying thing. So I think that he he came already interested in how you described humanity in history uh, at the lower level, as well as being very well equipped to understand high politics was a great deal of ease and a great deal of understanding of the of the bigger issues, but already very much the historian of the simple people in the story of China. Um, where to next? I'm going to jump uh, to try to, we're going to try and stitch the different parts of Jonathan Spence together. I'm going to jump to another anecdote of uh, Jonathan, the, the historian of Chinese history was the long sweep, and also the the biographer of Mao. It was a time, um, I'm not sure if this has ever been recorded, uh, so it's being recorded now for the first time, maybe. It was um, Henry Kissinger's first visit to Yale. Henry, in his time as the uh, national security advisor, and then also as uh, Secretary of State, had used an extremely talented and gifted uh, note-taker and historical advisor called Charlie Hill. Charlie Hill of the State Department, then Special Assistant to Henry, then Special Assistant to George Schultz, and then coming on to be a... Uh, fellow at International Security Studies at Yale when he moved with his wife, Norma Thompson, as she took up the position in the Whitney Humanities Center, and they both moved from California to Yale itself. It was Charlie who was one of the members of the faculty teaching the Grand Strategy Program at Yale, managed to persuade a somewhat cautious Henry Kissinger to come and join us for a dinner discussion on grand strategy, history, and politics. Henry came to join us at uh, Berkeley College. Charlie Hill was the executive fellow at Berkeley and so arranged it there. But one of the things that Kissinger said was that if he came, he wanted, this was his gravelly voice, he said, I, I, I want, I want to talk with Jonathan Spence. I must, I must talk with Spence about China. So, so we I arranged this. I, I asked a, a slightly bemused Jonathan if he would mind coming over to, to meet Henry in the master's house at, at Berkeley, and uh, Henry said, I need some. I need some time to to talk with with this great historian, and so I, Charlie Hill and I arranged this. And I have a memory of uh, we we left them alone and we talked with the the students in the grand strategy class in some other room. I have a memory of looking into the room where Jonathan and Henry were together. And they were 
talking to each other in a very intimate way. And usually Henry does all the talking, but not this time. He was asking Jonathan about, you know, the sweep of Chinese history and civilization. And I thought that this is, this is quite extraordinary. You know, here is, here is the historian of the, of the woman Wang. Here is the historian of Matteo Ricci. Here is a person who gets into the mind and the story of, of, of who. And yet he can also write about Mao. And he can write about the Chinese Revolution. And he can write about China at the top. And probably what, what are the main drivers still of the leaders of China today, which was obviously in Henry Kissinger's mind. And so I thought to myself, is there any other historian I know who can write so much and so well about the low-level story of China and the Chinese on the one hand, and he can be consulted by the formidable Dr. Henry Kissinger on the other hand about where is China going and how do we in the West really understand China? I, I just want to. I just want you to keep going all day. Um, maybe, maybe we we we've spoken a little bit of, but we've spoken a fair amount about the the you know bottom up Annales school type work. But I, I I'd, I'd love to hear you sort of reflect um, on the search for modern China, sort of your interactions with him as you were trying to process the sweep of China for your research. What do you think about his approach? Made him taking the, you know, centuries-long view uh, so successful in his, in, his, in his writing? This is my guess, but my guess is um, the intellectual traditions that he came from allowing for a study of large-scale sweep of history. He went to uh, Winchester College, which is by renown the most intellectual of the English, I say English rather than British, public schools. If Eton is for the snobs and for the prime minister, if, uh, if, if, if Harrow is for people going to, to the Indian civil service, Winchester is for the intellectuals. And I think uh, his going after the two-year gap in the British army, which is, I'm arguing, had probably a very, very significant influence on the, on the way Jonathan thought about human life and condition. He then goes to one of the most formidable intellectual places to do chiefly Tudor and Stuart history, and then English and European history since the Middle Ages, and will probably end up doing a whole sweep of examination questions. Uh, to in order to get that uh, first-class degree with distinction, which he gets at Clare College, he would have probably had to do a a whole lot of you know extraordinarily intellectually challenging uh, exam questions in his three-hour final exams. Those those tricky English-type questions, which it would be you know was the First World War caused by long-term or short-term, uh, short-term, uh, 
factors. And the, the, it's, a, it's a real trap unless you know that you have to elegantly pick your way in and explain that there were short-term factors there, but there was a long-term sweep of the changing balance of power in Europe and the rise in the center of the great powers of uh, an imperial Germany. So he could do that like a dream. So it meant that when he, when he was deciding to turn his lectures, his famous lectures, into a history of the rise of modern China, he had this just this uh, amazing, quiet confidence in being able to do it. And the confidence, it, it, it staggered myself, and I think it staggered some of my colleagues to, to think of that, that confidence because he was about the most unruffled, that's an interesting adjective, I think he was about the most unruffled uh, lecturer that, that I have encountered. Um, I hope the word unruffled came over clearly enough. After the summer of Tiananmen Square, everybody and their auntie, uh, so to speak, wanted to attend Jonathan Spencer's undergraduate Rise of Modern China class in the following fall. So the numbers who wanted to go there are not just undergraduates, but there were Yale administrators and secretaries and, and fellow historians who wanted to sit in to see how he would weave the very contemporary issue of Tiananmen into the long history of Chinese regimes suppressing revolution and revolt. So there was no way in which the law school auditorium, which at that time before was refurbished, could take 530 people. There was no way the law school auditorium could take the numbers who wanted to get in. They defied the Yale fire marshal's restrictions. <laughs> we were all sent across the way to, um, to Woolsey Hall. And so Jonathan lectured in Woolsey Hall, at first in the pulpit, and it didn't work. So he would then go and he would, in the middle of the great podium at Woolsey Hall, he would sit in a small, like an, an armchair or an easy chair with a microphone around his neck. And he would talk and he would talk without notes. And I thought just how, how much you must be in control of your evidence, how much you must be in control of the five or six major points you want to give in that lecture, and how you can move from point one to point two, making it so effortless, and yet it all fit, fitted together. So I think there was just an unusual intellectual skill about being able to do synthesis on the one hand and small-scale anecdotal stuff on the other hand. But he did his research so thoroughly indeed. We haven't mentioned here another aspect of his writing, which was for many years he was one of the 
key or the core book reviewers for Bob Silver's New York Review of Books. When, when the New York Review of Books was at its height, Silver's would just had a small stable of particular writers, which he used time and again. It would be, you know, people like John Eliot. So all of the books which would come out on Spain or Imperial Spain or the Thirty Years' War or things like that would be, uh, the reviewer would be John Eliot at the Institute for Advanced Study. All of the books which came out on medieval to modern China essentially were reviewed by Jonathan. I think after Jonathan Spencer's passing away in December, late December, the New York Review of Books issued a list, which you can now get to and read for free, of all 35 major articles on books on Chinese history, which were written as extended book review essays in the New York Review by Jonathan Spence from the, maybe the late 70s through the 80s and the 90s into the turn of the century. And the amount of research he did on the book that he reviewed and then on the author of the book that he was talking about is just phenomenal. And so if, I think if we're talking about, you know, lessons for young historians or how you move from being a, a younger historian to the next stages of your intellectual growth and development, I think there might be nothing more interesting than to go to this New York Review of Books source and then start it, do it as a late evening exercise. Just go skimming through, jumping from one book review essay of Spencer's to, to the next one. The review of the remarkable volumes on science and civilization in China, for example, are just classic, but the way he, he's able to also dig into the life and times of the author or authors of science and civilization in China are also quite, quite remarkable. So I think this is, this is a way in his, uh, his polymathic way of looking at China as through the lens of a book review, through the lens of a small archival piece of fragment of evidence, he turns it into something bigger and he turns bigger things into something small. I, I want to come back to the sort of lessons for future historians, but um, uh, jumping off of the talking about his lectures, um, what was Spence like in conversation? He was, uh, he was easygoing, whatever topics we talked about. And some of them were probably, uh, you know, on, on difficult subjects. He, he was, I never saw him angry in the whole of his life. I never saw him I never saw him lose his temper. That meant he had this extraordinary equanimity. I mean, uh, there's some people I would say who didn't, who, who wouldn't suffer fools gladly, but Jonathan would be able to understand the, 
the vagaries and the weaknesses of people without getting so annoyed at them. He had a a wonderful chuckle when he was uh, when he when he got really uh, amused at something. He would sort of shake his head and and chuckle a bit. He was not a leader in the discourse of the senior historians when we met to do uh, really important discussions on tenure or appointments, but he would come in uh, thoughtfully in uh, making observations about the candidate's qualities. Uh, uh, he, he was such a re remarkable person. I mean, he might have given a, 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 one of his lectures to a very, very large audience at 10.30 that morning in the Yale Law School. Then he might have gone into college at TD uh, during the middle of the day. And then in the early afternoon, he might be found completely alone in the back room of Naples Pizza down Wall Street, just sitting in a corner. And he would be sitting there writing on this yellow legal pad. This is pre-laptop for Jonathan Spence. And God knows he might be, maybe he'd be writing up some parts of that day's lecture because they are going to be part of his great work or of uh, the rise of modern China. I'm not sure about that. And then at about you know 20 past three, he would probably have checked his watch and then he would walk up the street to the Hall of Graduate Studies and come in to HGS 211 and join the historians in their debate upon this, this tenure candidacy. And then he would, and then probably he would just, you know, quietly go home to, to his, to check with his sons, Colin and Ian, as to how things were going on at, at, at Hopkins School or wherever. And he would have this easygoing, multidimensional aspect to him, which was really rare among the many, many outstanding colleagues which were in that department at the time. Other advice to people who want to write like him one day, um, cultivating the mindset, the approach. I think he was a very firm believer in setting the scene. Letting, letting your reader know a little bit of the, the background, um, making sure that in the first initial paragraph of what you are writing, you are talking a bit about background of the character you're looking at. You may be setting the chronological scene a, a little bit more than you would. So you're not, it's very, it's very, uh, common for graduate students, especially if you've come out of the archives and you've been working for a year or two in this particular narrow field to assume everybody else is familiar with what you're now going to describe. And I think Jonathan gave the reader a chance. And I think giving the reader a chance, even if you're drafting it as, you know, chapter four of your dissertation to try to do some connectivity with some of the rest of the dissertation and to make, to put some descriptive parts in there, not over embellishing it in a purple prose way, 
but just to make it easier on the reader's understanding of what's going on, he would approve of that. Um, I feel like I should I should save my sort of rise and fall of great powers, China, World War II questions, maybe for another time. But um, if there are other uh, other aspects to to Spence, you'd like to you'd like to hit on today. Oh, one more anecdote, uh, just to uh, just to just to keep you amused. I talked about you know Henry Henry Kissinger being just just almost stunned by Jonathan's erudition on China and wanting to talk more and more. There was one other uh, visitation to Yale of people who sort of realized the the value and attractiveness of Jonathan's great knowledge of China. Uh, and this was a visit by some senior um, senior vice presidents of British Petroleum, a, a very talented chief assistant to John Brown, who was at that stage the CEO of British Petroleum, called Nick Butler, a very bright person who had also done uh, an excellent BA at Cambridge, I think at Clare College. Nick came to talk with myself and John Gaddis about whether from time to time the professors in grand strategy and other professors at Yale might talk a little about current politics. Yeah, Nick Butler knew that we had experts on, on Gorbachev, on the Soviet Union, on China, on Middle East politics, on rise and fall of great powers. And he thought it was important for the senior business decision makers at British Petroleum to know something about the scholarly way of looking at the world and the importance of history, which was, this was Nick's, uh, because of his history degree, his, uh, but his now work for BP, the importance of history to international business as well as to international decision makers. We were in a edge of a long lunchtime talk with the BP senior vice president and other vice presidents talking about all sorts of general things. And then the senior vice president let out that they wished they could have better connections in, in China and be better able to acquaint with the Chinese officials in one of the central provinces in China in which British Petroleum, for its own secular reasons, had a strong interest. Now, in the group of historians we had invited to talk with the British Petroleum executives was none other than Professor Jonathan Spence. When we quizzed the British Petroleum people why they were so interested in uh, establishing links with the decision makers and the people who made things go in this large province of central China, they confessed that they were in this rivalry with two large French oil development and petroleum companies. I think it might have been Conaco or whatever the French company was. And to get the contract for the distribution of oil supplies and oil products right across central China, this would be a huge boost for them if they got the supply contract for central China. 
but they were not able to find anybody on the Chinese side who would pay much attention to British petroleum. What on earth could they do to get an advantage here in their competition with their French rivals? There was a silence, and then a voice came across the table, and it was Jonathan Spence. Kind of, in his, the way he did it, he, he tended to scratch his beard a little on the left-hand side of a face, and he said, oh, well, you know, you, you might offer to help the archaeological digs to the old, the original Chinese emperors. And there was a, a bewildered silence, both by myself and Jonathan Spence and even Charlie Hill on our side of the table and total silence among the British petroleum executives. And then the senior vice president said, what do you mean the archeological dig? And then Jonathan, again, scratching his, his chin, he said, well, you know, they, they've run out of money. They were this Chinese archaeological, this is a, this is a Beijing centered, the national archaeological dig, but they were short of money. And this area in central China was where the ancient graves of the, of some of the key Chinese emperors of the most ancient times are still there. And they haven't been care carefully excavated. They're trying to do it one Chinese emperor's grave at a time, but and it's, it's a multi-year project, but they're unable to do their work at the moment. And this joint China and UNESCO project is kind of fading away. And so the, the, the big honcho from British Petroleum has said, well, 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 what could we do? And Jonathan said, well, you know, if you offered to fund the continue, continuation of the archaeological dig and said that British Petroleum would be a sponsor for this valuable enterprise so that it could continue, you would be surprised because even the most diehard communist Chinese officials are proud of the history of the Han emperors and the Qin emperors and everything else like that. And if they saw that you were reaching out in this gesture to help the archaeological dig continue, then in the next year, when you made your competitive bid to be the distribution company for the greater part of central China, they would probably pay you back because that's the way Chinese officials think of things but you make the first step forward. And so once again, there was total silence in the room. And then I can remember the head of BP leaning over the table again, and he said, well, like, how much would it cost to fund, you know, an archeological dig for one or two of these Chinese emperors' grave sites? And Jonathan said, oh, well, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a full expert, I'm not an archaeologist here, but I think perhaps a million dollars or a million and a half dollars would get the whole archaeological enterprise done. And just that morning, I had read that a BP, this was in the Financial Times, 
British Petroleum was going to do some huge offshore exploration of the coast of West Africa, where it was, where there is uh, detected under the oceans an enormous big oil field. And BP was going to spend maybe up to 23 billion pounds, about $30 billion on that oil exploration. And so $1 million to fund the archaeological digs continuance and to get an access in to the distribution rights for central China seemed so small to this big honcho in British Petroleum. And they kind of goggled as we, I don't know quite how it ended. I think there were, Jonathan gave some ideas of people who might be contacted. And so the BP people went off kind of delirious at this idea <laughs> that they could somehow get in and develop this. And I thought to myself, here is just another example. Nobody at the beginning of the afternoon, nobody had told Jonathan Spence that um, BP would be making this question about their possible exploration and their possible business enterprise in central China. Nobody had thought about these ancient Chinese archaeological digs. And yet in one person of Jonathan Spence, they had been brought together a contemporary matter as well as deep historical knowledge of where you are in China, where you might be able to undertake this big enterprise, a combination of argue. It looked to me like it was a win-win-win situation for all concerned. Only Jonathan would have known the connectivity of it. Well, I think we can all be very grateful that instead of making lots of money working for Kissinger Associates, doing this his whole life, he only let it take over an evening and spent the rest of his, uh, his career writing books. I think we all can. Uh, his colleagues are just uh, missing him very, very much. Uh, but uh, what a full and accomplished life uh, this, this young scholar of Winchester College uh, brought to the profession. Paul Kennedy, thank you so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you. I enjoyed the chat. Thanks again. I will follow the trails and the trials of a devoted soul who has been trained in hands of Ling, in Latin, Greek, and poetry, in logic and rhetoric, physics and mathematics, not to mention Lord philosophy, medicine and theology, history and astronomy to better serve our Jesus society for the sake of humanity by the grace of God with the art of memory to better society for the sake of humanity by the grace of God